Well, let's turn now to the third chapter of the book of Romans. And we will begin reading at verse 21, Romans chapter 3. I dearly love this passage. I love preaching it, thinking upon it. Let's briefly pray. Our Father and our God, we ask in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, that you will apply this text to our hearts and lives, that we may understand increasingly, that we may understand better and better what it means that Jesus is the Redeemer and that we need him and that we cannot be saved without him. So that, Father, your people will grow in grace and we will witness before the world to your goodness and that those among us who may be lost and undone will put their faith in Jesus. Perhaps tonight, Father, someone who is lost, who is blind, who cannot see, who is dead in trespasses and sins, Father, perhaps tonight you will give them life, that they may be raised spiritually from the dead, united with Jesus, and trust in him alone for redemption. How wonderful it would be. We ask for that in every service of worship. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 21. This is the word of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Throughout history, there have been times when the truth of our acceptance with God on the basis of the imputed righteousness of Christ alone, has been obscured. This has kept the gospel from the masses and assurance of faith has been robbed from true believers. This was the Reformers' battle during the Protestant Reformation. Rome's Council of Trent codified their view that anathematizes all who teach justification by grace through faith alone. This is still the official position of Rome. Or today, N.T. Wright, for instance, says that the Reformers didn't understand Paul on this great matter and he wants to set us right. And so he takes a result of justification, which is membership in the covenant community, and makes that justification itself. I know this from a first-hand reading of Wright, not just from secondary sources. But what do we expect 
This is the standing or falling doctrine of the church, as Luther called it, and we can expect that it will come under attack from the evil one and from sophisticated and often very winsome sources. But now let's be plain about what Paul is doing here. Paul has been tracing out in these first three chapters sin, guilt, and wrath. That all mankind is under the wrath of God because we are all guilty, because we are all sinners. That is true of Jew, that is true of Gentile, it is true of everyone. So the Apostle Paul is setting up this great theological problem. How can God forgive? How is it possible that we can be just in the presence of a holy God, a just God? How can we be accepted by Him? And when we come to verse 21 of chapter 3, we come to the great dramatic turning point of the book of Romans. It's a dramatic turning point on the order of a new age. The flow of the argument is simply this. God has provided a perfect righteousness, that is to say a perfect record, received solely by faith. It is done through the work of Jesus Christ alone. It is altogether by grace through His redeeming blood and in a way that is consistent with God's own character. The judge submitted himself to be judged in our place, which gives all the glory to God. Now, it would take several sermons for us to unpack rightly everything that is found in the verses that we have read tonight. But often when I come to this text, I like to to ask what happened on the cross by focusing on three key words that we find in the passage. That's what we're doing now. The first of those three words is the word redemption. Redemption. We find it in verse 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Grace, God's saving kindness despite ourselves, is shown to us by the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come to tell us that we are saved, but actually to save sinners by redeeming us. So what do we mean when we say redemption? What is redemption? Redemption is the purchase of release by the payment of a price. It is a ransom, a payment, a substitution, a buying back that involves setting free of those who now are redeemed. Redemption is securing release by the payment of of a ransom. And according to this text, blood that is connected to propitiation in this verse, in these verses, is the price that is paid for our ransom. Now, there are three categories or aspects of redemption that we find in the New Testament. The first has to do with our slavery to sin. We are enslaved to sin. The second has to do with the price to redeem, which is blood which points to substitution. Christ actually stood in the place of others. He filled the place of his people so that we would not have to suffer in hell for our sin. And then also that we are set free from the old dominion and master uh, of, uh, of of our souls, the evil one and sin, to a new dominion and a new master uh, who is Jesus Christ. In redemption, sinners are seen as slaves in chains, slaves on the block that are about to be sold. Christ has set us free. The price? Blood. What does this mean when we are told that the price is blood? It means the taking of the penalty due the sinner's sin in the sinner's place. 
Now, this fundamental teaching of substitution, substitutionary atonement, I want to bring to your attention once again, is under attack. It is not the first time that it's been under attack. It has been under attack numbers of times through the history of the Christian church. But it is under attack again. I said to a friend and ruling elder just yesterday, it seems that many of of these heresies are coming from all different directions nowadays. Old things that have been dealt with very well in the history of the church that are cropping up again in the church today. Theories of atonement are in vogue that deny that the work of Christ was substitutionary. But this is crucial. This is indispensable. Apart from this, there is no Christianity. Now let's get this. There is no Christianity without substitutionary atonement. So that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1.7 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So that the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 15, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And our Lord Jesus Christ himself said in Mark 10 and quoted in other places in the Gospels that the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Christian, the Lord Jesus placed himself under your liabilities. You were liable to the penalty of the law. And he placed himself under your liability to the law. Is this clear to you? That when we sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, what we are saying is, I'm hopeless if I do not have a sinless substitute who bore my sin and who took God's wrath in my place. So what did Christ's redemption accomplish for his people? Well, three things. First of all, complete deliverance from the penalty of sin. Now, that's the emphasis of verse 24 in chapter 3 of Romans. Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Complete deliverance from the penalty of sin. Our justification, in other words. As Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Our sins imputed to him, his righteousness imputed to us, received by faith alone. The second thing that happens with redeeming work of Christ is deliverance from the bondage of sin. Redemption is by payment of a ransom, and it presupposes that we were previously possessed by another master. But now we have been purchased by this new master. We are now free from that other master. That is why Paul, in the context of sexual sin in Corinth, can appeal to you were bought with a price. You do not belong to yourselves. You have been bought with a price. Why submit yourselves to that old master? And this is a powerful, powerful truth in Christian living. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, Whenever God pardons sin, he subdues it. Then is the condemning power of sin taken away when the commanding power of it is taken away. If a malefactor be in prison, how shall he know that his prince hath pardoned him? If a jailer come and knock off his chains and fetters and let him out of prison, then he may know that he is pardoned. So if we walk at liberty in the ways of God, this is a blessed sign that he has pardoned us. And then thirdly, when we think of redemption, at the return of Christ, 
There will be, because we belong to him and his shed blood has bought us, there will be, thank God, complete and utter deliverance from the moral suasion of sin, the presence of sin, the very presence of sin in my heart and in your heart and in our lives. I look forward to that day. That's the first word, redemption. The second word is the word propitiation. Propitiation, verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, somebody might have an NIV here. I'm reaching kind of far back, but I think it says sacrifice of atonement uh, instead of propitiation. I remember when uh, the, the NIV was being translated that Dr. Boyce contacted the translators and said, why do you want to say sacrifice of atonement? And they wrote him back and said, because nobody knows what propitiation means. And he wrote them back and said, do they know what sacrifice of atonement means? <clears throat> the Christian faith has to be taught. And this is a biblical word and a very, very essential and important word, propitiation. Some have called this verse the Acropolis of the Bible and of the Christian faith. And Paul is answering the question, what happened when Jesus died on the cross? What is the core issue? What is the fundamental matter of his death on the cross? The problem it addresses is the problem of the wrath of God that we deserved on our sin. Propitiation means the satisfaction of God's wrath, the removal of God's wrath by the payment of that redemption price of blood. Now, it's denied by many who polarize wrath and love. When I teach my Christology class out in Dallas, I spend a long, long time dealing with the linguistics of the word, its history, the development of thought. We spend a lot of time with it, but just to say... There are those who polarize wrath and love. They say either we have a wrathful God or a God of love. If God is a God of love, he can't be a God of wrath. But the New Testament doesn't know anything about such a God. As a matter of fact, all you have to do is look at the book of Romans. We find in the very first chapter in verse 18 that the apostle says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then wrath is referenced ten times in the book of Romans. And then all you have to do is then to turn to chapter 5, verse 8, in which the apostle says God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So evidently the apostle Paul didn't polarize wrath and love. That this God who loved us and gave his Son is the same God who had wrath over us, condemnation upon us, because of our sin, and he dealt with it through the cross. And so this wrath is not capricious, but is the settled attitude of God's character against our awful sin and rebellion. Now consider two things. First of all, we are told in this verse, whom God put forward as a propitiation by blood. Now much can be said here, but when it says that God put him forward or presented him, I simply want to say this. It's not a question of the Son winning the Father over. I've sometimes heard the cross preached that way, as if the Son is twisting the Father's arm to love his people, winning his Father over for us. It's not that at all. This would be a total misrepresentation of things. 
God met the sinner's need under wrath from the depths of his own love and sovereign mercy. It was the Father who set his love upon us and sent his Son who willingly came. The Son is not somehow twisting the Father's arm to love us, but the cross that removes the wrath of God comes from the depths of the Father's eternal and everlasting love for you. And then as we think of this word propitiation, it adds a little depth dimension, I think, as we recall that the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was the version in use by the apostles, the Septuagint, uses this word propitiation, hilasterion, as a translation of the word mercy seat in the Old Testament. Mercy seat. The high priest, as you recall, on the Day of Atonement, once per year, took blood into the Holy of Holies from the sacrifices, sprinkled it on and before the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the people. The mercy seat, gold covering on top of the ark, which had manna, Aaron's rod, and the tables of the law within, and these huge cherubim of beaten gold that faced each other, representing, representing God's presence. What a mighty, mighty picture it is. The cherubim on top, the law beneath, and God looking down. And you will recall that as the sacrifice was offered, there was the incense, the cloud of incense, that so covered the area that it was thick and could not be seen. Well, now God is not hidden behind a cloud of incense, but his love is plainly manifest in the cross. And all that was pointed to by the mercy seat has been fulfilled in Jesus. This God looking down upon the tables of the law, that law demanding the sinner's death, the demands of that law have been fully met in Jesus Christ through his shed blood. The incense has been, has been moved aside. We can now see clearly through the gospel that our salvation has been wrought by Jesus' blood. This is the wonder of propitiation. Now, years ago when I was a boy, I was uh, reading in John Owen, the Puritan. I had uh, his volume on justification. And I came across four essential elements in a propitiation. I've never forgotten them. The first is an offense to be taken away. There's an offense. We've offended God. We've offended we have broken his law. There is an offense that must be taken away. The second is a person offended who needs to be pacified. And that person is God himself. And then thirdly, an offending person, a person guilty of the offense. That's me and that's you. And then fourthly, a sacrifice or some other means for making atonement for the offense. And that is Jesus. Now this is remarkable. It is truly remarkable to pause and consider that God is the offended party who had every right to remove me from his presence forever and to condemn me under his wrath, under his wrathful presence forever. It would have been perfectly just had God sent me to hell forever. God is the offended party. I broke his law and yet here is what is remarkable. God takes the offense for us. God, in the person of his Son, pays the penalty for us. God, 
provides the sacrifice, the means for removing the offense. I've always loved that little illustration that I've seen in many places through the years, that one who stands in the midst of an already scorched earth when the forest fire comes, when the fire comes, it goes around him, around the already scorched earth. Why does it do that? If I stand in that area that has already been scorched, the fire goes around, the reason it does so is because there is nothing left to burn. (laughs) That is what Jesus has done for us. He bore the wrath, the hot fury of the wrath of God. I now stand with my Lord And when the fire of God's wrath comes, it goes around me. It does not touch me because there is nothing left to burn. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so you will see that this word propitiation is extremely important to the Christian's vocabulary and to our understanding of things. Jesus is the propitiatory sacrifice that satisfies the justice of God so that we might be acceptable to him through what Christ has done. Third word, the word blood. We find it in verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now why blood specifically? Why not simply death? And not only here, but it's a consistent emphasis in the New Testament to stress the blood of Christ, the precious blood of Christ, as Peter puts it. Well, in the Old Testament, we read the life of the flesh is in the blood. It signifies life that is given up in death, this blood. Nefesh, life. Also in Isaiah 53.10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Now one writer says, blood, the blood of Christ is like cross, only another clearer expression for the death of Christ and its saving meaning. And I want to say, yes, it is, that's true, but that's not enough. That's true. It underscores again for us something else. This word blood, when we think the life of the flesh is in the blood, This word blood underscores again for us the substitutionary nature of the atonement. The text says blood rather than simply death to point us to the Old Testament sacrifice and to the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus Christ's blood must be shed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. It says blood to be clear about what Christ did. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Gave him to what? Gave him to accomplish what? Gave him to shed his blood. So when we come to the communion table this Wednesday, or as we did this morning, and we hear those familiar words, this cup is the new covenant in his blood, all of you drink it. If you are one who is in the new covenant, it is because of Christ's propitiatory, sacrificial, substitutionary death 
because his blood has been shed. It is because of the propitiatory sacrifice and shed blood in the place of sinners. This is deeply profound. Deeply profound. Our justification, that is to say, the way in which we are acceptable to God, our justification is founded on this reality. Are you clear on these things? Because not only is justification by grace through faith based completely on the merit of Jesus alone, not only is that the standing or falling doctrine of the church, with it or without it, the church stands or falls, but it is the standing or falling doctrine of the soul. If you are not sure about this, you can be sure of nothing. Are you sure about this? Are you clear about this? That our acceptance with God is only through Christ's shed blood. Do you know that you need a substitute in your place to bear your condemnation and wrath? That's what was happening in the text this morning as we see Jesus suffering under Pontius Pilate and moving on to the cross. He is the propitiatory sacrifice for our sins. James Denny actually said it very well although he himself is not always consistent. What he says about Paul here is very true. There can be no gospel unless there is such a thing as a righteousness of God for the ungodly. But just as little can there be any gospel unless the integrity of God's character be maintained. Paul felt that the sin of the world made a difference to God. It was a sin against his righteousness, and his righteousness had to be vindicated against it. He could not ignore it. So here's the great theme of the Apostle Paul. Here's the great issue. How can God be just and at the same time receive a sinner as just? And the answer, the substitutionary work of his son, the propitiatory wrath, the propitiatory sacrifice removing God's wrath. So the wrath problem has been answered in Jesus Uh, Where is the only place on which you can place your feet in view of God's holiness? Where is the ground of your acceptance? How is it that the fire of God's wrath and condemnation will go around you? The answer is, whom God hath put forward as a propitiation by faith in his blood. In the words of the old hymn, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And oh, how this establishes us, how this is the ground of our assured acceptance with God. And on our deathbed, our works will not do. On our deathbed, there can be no mixture of human merits along with what Jesus did. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. You know the Roman Catholic who said to a Protestant, our doctrine is best to live in, but yours is best to die in. Well, I want to live in that doctrine that is best to die in. Don't you? So let me ask you the question, are you prepared to die? Young, old, doesn't matter. Are you prepared to die? Are you prepared to meet God? this just and this holy God. There's only one way that you can meet him, that you can be prepared to meet him. And that is to know 
that you have trusted in Christ, whose blood has removed the wrath of Almighty God. George Smeaton, the great Scotch divine, said, Christ is our meritorious redemption, our infinite ransom, and in the objective sense that he will continue to be so while his living person endures. There, the judge beholds the church's redemption, and every time he looks on the person of Christ, he sees our eternal ransom. Which is to say, if your trust is in Jesus, in God's court of law, every time he looks upon you, he sees Christ who shed his blood and removed God's wrath. That's the meaning of this text, at least a little of it, because as I say, it would require many sermons to unpack. Redemption from sin, propitiation, blood. Will you take these words and will you dwell upon them? And if there is anyone here that does not know Christ as Lord and Savior, may the Holy Spirit work within your heart that this night you trust in him and in his shed blood for your redemption.